about this podcast. Your hosts, Ed Hammond and Diego Kaminker, talk with global leaders in healthcare informatics about the evolution, current status, and future of healthcare interoperability in their regions and worldwide. This podcast is sponsored by EMEA IASI and HL7 International and is produced by HL7 Argentina. Ed and Diego select five questions for their guests and then let them answer freely. The questions are randomly chosen live from a longer list, so they'll be surprised and their guests will be surprised too. About our sponsors. About the Academy. The International Academy of Health Sciences Informatics was established in 2017 under the auspices of EMEA, the International Medical Informatics Association. It promotes the dissemination of informatics-based knowledge and best practices, fosters new ideas, and encourages worldwide collaboration and sharing of expertise and resources. About HL7 International. Founded in 1987, Health Level 7 International is a not-for-profit ANSI-accredited standards-developing organization. HL7 is supported by more than 1,600 members from over 50 countries, including 500-plus corporate members. About HL7 Argentina. HL7 Argentina was founded in 1999, making it one of the oldest HL7 affiliates. HL7 Argentina created the HL7 Fire Fundamentals course, which has educated about 7,000 students in HL7 standards worldwide since 2008. A little about your hosts. Diego Kaminker has defined, implemented, and maintained hundreds of healthcare interoperability projects using the major HL7 standards. He's an Academy Fellow and is currently an Affiliate Director on the HL7 International Board. Ed Hammond is Chair Emeritus and Founder of HL7 International, Chair of the Standards Panel of EMEA-IASI, and Creator of the original HL7 Messaging Standard. For more details, be sure to check out the podcast notes. Okay, welcome back, because we did this yesterday. We are still in... in bless you. Are you okay, Ed? How are you, Yeah. <laughs> we are here with Ed again from Henderson, Nevada, near Vegas. And we have another guest today. Uh, it's Mario Highland. Hello, Mario. Hello. Diego, welcome. hello, Ed. Hello. Welcome to our podcast. Uh, Mario is a senior vice president and founder of EDGES, more than 30 years supporting information technology, having a variety of roles and responsibilities. Mr. Highland, Mario served the industry in the capacity of product developer manager in pharmaceutical and with more than 120 pharma companies across Canada and the US. He has been a board member of industry organizations such as application service providers, executive consortium, the HL7 ERB, and various HIMSS chapters. His focus on testing was spawned by a desire to ensure production systems have the highest data quality as possible. While working with the VA, DOD, ONC, and other federal partners, Mr. Highland advanced the concept of standard-based development to align with cloud testing services with the Developers Integration Lab, DIAL. Through this lab, more than 500 organizations, including vendors, implementers, and exchange participants were able to self-service and test conformance to ensure continuous interoperability. 
Then he created the Touchstone project, cloud platform designed to support fire implementations around the globe. And here we are. Touchstone currently supports programs like DaVinci, Karin Alliance, Karin BB, Ontario Health, Nictis, and Medcom. Welcome again, Mario, a very impressive bio. I just read a few paragraphs. Um, let's begin with our questions. Our first question is usually the same. So we ask you what brought you to uh, healthcare interoperability? What was your driver? And I know that you are known as the interrupt guy. So I want you also to tell us about that. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Diego. I appreciate the introduction and Ed looking forward to having a meaningful conversation and chat. So um, I was supporting um, the Department of Veteran Affairs um, internally on some standards-based approaches to interfaces and uh, mostly working with VISTA and, and some of the MHV, My Healthy Vet programs with a, and our executive sponsor was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Robert Kolodner. Dr. Kolodner um, became one of the ONC national coordinators. And in doing so, as he moved from the Department of Veteran Affairs over to HHS, he realized the critical uh, needs around testing and his uh, staff and team agreed with him. And he um, requested that uh, our services come over and work with the ONC, specifically around advancing an early program, um, the Interop Lab, uh, testing um, the NHIN, the Nationwide Health Information Exchange, which was a set of IHE standards. And it was um, not common to me at the time that, uh, standards um, were being used to help organizations be interoperable. Um, so we had to learn uh, many of the IHE standards, XCPD, XCA, and as you know, many of those uh, underlying IHE or underlying within the IHE standards are a lot of the HL7, B2, and B3 architecture. So we started to learn about H HL7, but I've, um, I've also spanned more than 20 years supporting um, the U.S. Uh, behavioral care, um, working with value options and uh, and Medco, um, we've seen the 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 healthcare landscape move from separating behavioral care from physical and clinical care to now a joint. So I have a lot of experience in, in that area. Um, but why standards? Um, uh, you know, my uh, my early days uh, uh, were based on testing working with uh, Litton guidance on the cruise missile. And if you want to understand why testing is so important, think about thousands of payloads on a cruise missile flying over friendly soldiers, um, seeking to, to arrive on their target. Um, you really can't have a mistake. You've got to take the quality matters. So healthcare, we feel the same things. Feel and the same. Why, why you go to healthcare? What, what, what was your, your drive to go into healthcare? So it wasn't intentional. Um, I had uh, been working um, uh, in the uh, um, in the DOD uh, space, um, but found myself looking for a new opportunity. Um, programs were successful; they were shut down, and in doing so, I ended up getting uh, an opportunity to work in the Washington DC area with a, uh, a small uh, payer uh, vendor and mm -hmm. it introduced me to healthcare. 
Um, and yeah, I've been involved in healthcare since 1996, I guess. Um, so it just sort of, uh, we're, uh, my, our focus is around technology, but we keep getting brought into healthcare because healthcare is where there's a, a significant technology gap and, the, and our organization and myself are, have a passion to help um, every organization be interoperable because we believe that the patient will have better care that way. So which was the easiest, working on the missile? Got it, system testing or healthcare? No, it was me personally. Um, I was an, an employee of Lytton. Um, my work with Aegis uh, allowed me to work with the U.S. Army on AKO, Army Knowledge Online, and work at Belvoir and, and USERA, which is uh, Heidelberg. Um, but uh, no, the uh, Lytton, my opportunity with Lytton predates Aegis. My work on the cruise missile and the DoD work was done before I started. Uh, and what about the interrupt guy? Interrupt guy. So I was, um, um, that, that sort of started um, in, a, in a conference I was invited to in, in the UK. They were, uh, uh, NHS in, in the UK is a pretty big national effort to try to get uh, coordination of, of medical and uh, organizations together across Wales and, and the various parts of the UK. And um, uh, there were a number of speakers, and uh, and I got to be known as they were uh, sort of lining us up on uh, behind stage, and they said, "Oh yeah, he's he's the he's the interoperability guy." Um, so uh, it just sort of stuck. Um, people started talk, uh, lining my name, talking about uh, interoperability. So I enjoyed it. I didn't. Uh, so that's sort of where it started. Perfect. Okay. So the next question we will have to select with our wheel. Um, let's run it. Oh, it's uh, number three, apparently. So, uh, what do you think about our uh, use of standards? Uh, we say uh, that we are still stuck in the 90s, or, or, or have you seen any advance in, so, pro in production? <laughs> yeah, so I think the key lesson we've learned over the past 10 years um, uh, is there's nearly an exclusive use of the term um, interoperability. And we look at the way it's being implemented right now as point in time interoperability. And, you know, this is important. We want the standards, we want to get them published, but our goal is to help organizations understand what the what an aspect of continuous interoperability would look like. And the goal is to create an integrated ecosystem where healthcare communities can focus on rigorous and resilient solutions so that as solutions change, as standards change and versions are, are, um, are updated, we're not introducing as much breaking change. We wanna help the IT community get away from nearly exclusive happy path testing and also include some negative and out of bounds conditions because you know one of the one of the uh, the examples we use is everyone tests some organizations are lucky enough to have a testing environment translation these systems are either going to be tested by our doctors and our nurses on the front line while providing patient care or we can make an investment into testing and we can test it right while it's be while the standards are being developed, while early adopters are implementing, 
so that we can pave the way for wide industry adoption. So let me ask you a, a couple of questions, yes. one of which is, is interoperability a binary term? No, interoperability is a conversation. It's not a binary term. It's not, it's not rigid. So, so you're telling me that, 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 that interoperability can be partial. And, and you still use the word interoperability. I guess what I'm really trying to get at is the fact that we use adjectives in front of interoperability. And, and my comment is uh, interoperability, you either are or aren't. Okay, so um, interoperability is not something you can buy or sell. Interoperability has to start as a communication where we agree on the language we're going to talk. Once we establish the language, once we agree, once we come to consensus, then I'm sorry, the law is the law. You have to follow what we said we were going to do. You can't later on say, well, I didn't really mean it that way. No, when you're appearing in front of the judge and you wanna demonstrate why you implemented it a certain way, you're gonna open the law book. So when the law is being built, before it's put to pen, to paper, there's a lot of discussion. That's the communication part. That's where it shouldn't be rigid. We should be able to talk. But once we've implemented it in industry, then it has to be followed. I have some problems with that, and it, I'm completely in agreement, because that's how I want this to work. But it doesn't. So it's, it's like when we, we have an agreement on something, and then after some weeks, they say, okay, oh, we forgot something, or we cannot do what, what we promised. So we need to change the law. And it happens to me every, in every project, yep. every three months or, or, or so, there are new capabilities or, or new products and, and they have to. So I agree with you, but it doesn't happen so often. So I would suggest that uh, you, you, you implied interoperability has to be global. I think the benefit is when it's global. I think there's always an element of realm specific. Like in our standards world, we talk about US realm. We talk about Canada and Europe. And so there's always that nuance regional. Here in the US, we have Georgia, we have Nashville. Like there, there's nuances that, that creep in. But I think the overall scheme of what we're trying to do needs to be global because we are a global creature. <laughs> we move all over and we need to be able to get to our- I hear your answer to, you, to our first question and I'm, I'm tempted to ask something. Please. What do you think about pilots? What do I think about? Pilots. Instead of testing, we are going to do a pilot, piloting. So, so instead so, of, uh, we are testing and then we, we are so sure about our testing that we are going into a pilot. What do you think about pilots? So I think pilots are great as long as you're not experimenting on patients. If you're gonna do a pilot operation and you're gonna put patients in harm's way, and I can see that based on my experience, I'm gonna vote with you to say, no, I don't want a pilot where we haven't tested it. Rather, I would like to say, how can we, as we're getting ready for the pilot, how can we have lean, easygoing testing that points out the most egregious failures to implement something correctly 
that could put patients in harm's way. I would want to know that everyone on the group that's voting to do the pilot could see the level of risk. Before a pilot gets in an airplane, they always walk around to make sure the plane is okay. Why wouldn't we do that with our software? Mm -hmm. Good point, good point. But um, one backwards a little bit, but asking you, who, who has the responsibility for interoperability? You talked about uh, the IT world. The problem that I'm that I'm trying to get my arms around in a conversation with you is is really understanding. I mean, for me, clinical trials is a pilot, if you will. Yeah. Um, and and maybe IT doesn't have that same degree of uh, risk if we do it correctly. But 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 who has that responsibility? Who has the responsibility of understanding thoroughly? Uh, so I think so. I, I believe that it's a three part effort. I believe if, if I could speak to a research team before they start, and I could demonstrate to that research team why the quality of data in the next two years, what they collect, is gonna be really, really important for the next 10 years. And I could show them that in a very light way, we could improve the quality of the data and their cohort and the ability to collect data um, and we could do that relatively easy. We could reduce the risk to the research, to these clinical uh, efforts, and that data will be more valuable through testing. Because not, not that they're not testing what they're doing with their clinical research, but they, they actually have to test the IT because if that data is not collected right, curated right, if the quality controls aren't there, it's the same with doing blood tests. It's the same of doing any number of different things. We take exceptional care when we're testing HIV and, and, and all of those different things. We need to take the same rigor around software because ultimately the data we collect is going into it. And if we don't take that care, then one mistake could have significant repercussions. And the other question, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, going, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to that. through our rules today because I'm passionate too, as, yes. as Mario is. Uh, and, and you mentioned the, the, the happy path. And my, my question is, where do we get synthetic data to test the non-happy path? Because depending on the project, we need a specific kind of data to see that happy path and the, the unhappy path, or, or the, the very various unhappy path. And one of the, the things we have seen there, but what else we need? Okay, so for your audience, let's define happy path. Ideal data, perfect data, system works, ship it. That's not reality. Reality is data is all over the map, various levels of quality. The system has to work in all sorts of environments. If we do a blue screen or we do a core dump or a stack trace, or the data is just wrong as we present it to the medical professionals, we could be putting patients in harm's way. So the way we avoid that is not only to test happy path, but to ensure that when we test negatives, exceptions, the system behaves as expected. Now we have some challenges with this. We have some challenges because the examples that we're using are all happy path. We have challenges because when we talk about synthetic data, we actually need professionals who are clinical, 
clinical and aware of the linkages of data to build some really sophisticated synthetic data. We, we've, we've seen systems test with just randomized data. That doesn't work. The context of the data and the context of the event related to the data is as significant as what the IT code is doing with the data. So we have to make an investment and we have to be able to create specific patients with specific context of their care and where they are. And then ultimately we have to be able to test a system through the entire event of whatever that medical condition is as they're passed through their entire care coordination. This is really sophisticated stuff. This is hard stuff. This is not easier for the faint of heart. So let's talk about a negative. So what do we do in this situation? Well, what we do is we take the happy path tests and we specifically inject negatives. So when I query a patient and I say, hey, do you have, do you know the patient Mary? And you say back to me, yes, I know Mary. Here's Bob's record. I want you to update your information. Well, what does that receiving system do? Does it actually make sure that the patient record it got back was for the patient it knows about? Or does it just arbitrarily add all of Bob's demographic information to Mary's record? You'd be surprised. No, I, I will not. <laughs> I know. Yes. So when people ask me, okay, Mario, um, how many tests do you do for negative? I use it a percentage. 30% of all the testing that we do in Touchstone is happy path. 70% of the testing we do is negative, exception, error bounds, out of bounds conditions. And we watch the target system, how it reacts. That's where testing really hits the road. Because if we don't make that investment, if we don't do that, if the developers don't do that, remember a developer will only do what you write down for him to do. And so if we don't test the systems this way, then we're telling our doctors and our nurses that they can do it. They will test. They will test with a real patient. Yeah. So uh, we are departing a lot from these questions, but this is an interesting conversation. I I agree with what you what you're saying. It, it, the the problem, of course, is that um, I mean, how, do, how does your what you're talking about fit within the concept of uh, personal medicine or precision medicine, where every patient is different than every other patient? So within the standards domain, there are some very bright people. And they're trying to articulate a way through a published fire IG or a particular domain model as to what data they need to collect in order to manage that. Every patient is different. So we're not like a simple credit card transaction where we have 15 or 20 elements. We're healthcare. We have 10,000 elements. The question is, are the IT systems smart enough to understand as they communicate with a physician, these are the 50 you need to be aware of. These are the 25 that have changed. These are the 10 that are critical. These are the two I want you to really pay attention to. That's what the physicians are looking for. They don't want to know that we collected 10,000. If 9,000 of those elements are within what we call the norms and somebody's presenting a specific problem, 
we need to understand how to narrow in on those. And if if there's something wrong with the norms, then we need to figure out how to how to fix that. But, so, but it's hard. It's not easy. It's yeah, and, and and you know we we use the statement that a human is capable of uh, making decisions based on a maximum of five to seven facts. But now we're getting important information with some recent papers, been recent as the last ten years. Uh, we have genomic data, we have social determinants of health, we have behavior data, we have social, economic, etc. How, how does that all fit into your concepts of interoperability? So, I believe that there are new medical and clinical roles that have not been created yet, and. I believe that we're hampered from creating what I'm about to describe because the quality of the data doesn't support this. Eventually, when we talk about precision medicine and when we talk about a patient, there's going to be a physician who's responsible for the current medical condition of that patient. But there's going to be other medical professionals that are going to be able to look at the genome and look at what you're presenting with over time and different studies coming out and whether you are a potential risk category. So all of the studies and research we're doing, all of that data is going to become a decision support into, well, what should I be concerned about? Oh, well, um, we're watching your blood tests and we see that your kidneys are not processing where they should be. All of a sudden, based on other research, we can find out some of the th treatments that work and some of the things you should be trying. We're going to get ahead of people presenting with uh, with with um, with uh, terminal conditions. And but the professionals that do that are not the doctor you go in and visit with. They're a different level of medical professional that's working with the patients, working with the members. We don't have that infrastructure yet. We won't have it until we have the data and we have interoperability solved the way we need. That's my opinion. Okay. I, and I appreciate that as, as a vision for interoperability and, and why we, and, and I think it's aligned with, with the learning healthcare system that Ed has thought about in the past. So it, 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 it's not only the, the actual the data that we have now and the encounter that we have now, but also what we know about other stuff about the patient and uh, the evidence, the evidence medicine about the about the, the the patient condition, current and and overall. So yes. I think that's a very nice vision, which brings. I will not use my wheel of fortune. I will ask you what is your vision for healthcare interoperability, and. So as I've, I've, as I've said earlier, with respect to interoperability, I believe it's a global mission. We have the, uh, the United States, uh, one of our clients is the, the State Department. And the State Department has uh, individuals in many different countries. And they don't want to have to ship medical records manually to be printed and sitting on shelves um, because that causes a problem. Um, they'd, they'd rather say that the medical information is protected here in the U.S. And if any individual in a consulate or an embassy gets ill, that they can reliably communicate what those medical conditions are to any hospital. If we can do that for the, for the Department of State and we can work with these embassies around the world, then we should be able to work with the average traveler who happens to have some medical information. We've got programs like IPA and, and IPS that are gonna be mm -hmm. working on some of this stuff. We need to help 
countries who are identifying that they want to implement fire realize why regional-based uh, decisions could impact our ability to be globally connected. CES says it best. We're connected everywhere all the time. So if CES is building refrigerators and IoT to be connected anywhere, then we need to make sure that our healthcare systems across the globe align. And when there is some regional changes, we need to figure out how to mitigate those risks. Um, that's my opinion. I think that when we look at uh, at ultimately, um, uh, in order for interoperability, so you've heard me say, you can't buy interoperability and you can't sell interoperability. And what I mean by that is um, any vendor who implements a solution for a client, I am totally conformant with the specifications. If you buy my system, you're interoperable. That's not true. Interoperability is not achieved when one organization implements or 10 or 100, not even 1,000. If 1,000 organizations implement something one way, interoperability is only achieved when everyone agrees. And that's the key. That's what we're trying to do with Touchstone. That's what we're trying to do at the global level is we want everybody implementing standards. We want everyone to do it the same way. And there's reasons why they may not but we want people to make those informed decisions and we want everybody to do it. When you look at organizations like CMS, without putting words into CMS's, um, like I don't wanna say that I represent CMS, but I can look at that and go, it doesn't help CMS for us to publish a fire IG. We high five when we publish and get through ballot and release a, a version of a software, of a standard like fire, you know, R5 or R4, CMS doesn't celebrate that. CMS is going to celebrate FHIR when thousands of organizations have implemented FHIR. So if that's the case, then 30% of our job is to write the standard and 70% of our job is to get wide industry adoption. Touchstone is how we're going to get that 70%. We're going to help everybody do it the same way. Okay, the only thing I would, would say is that that Getting people to, to do that goes well beyond the industry as you're defining it, because the, the, I, I'm now arguing that clinicians need to demand the use of standardization. As we want to point. teach clinicians before they buy a system or if they're part of a medical group or part of a hospital system, that there is a way they can ask the vendor or their implementation team to show them a quality statement, conformance, on how well have we implemented that standard. And we think that that question does not only get posed to the internal operations of that hospital, but they could ask that question of all of the organizations trading medical information with them. All of their partners should prove to them that they have a high quality system in order to support bi-directional. That's why the EHR vendors are so resistant and, and reticent about opening bi-directional fire. No, I don't want to have to trust the quality of somebody else. I work hard on my quality. Well, if we don't improve that quality and show the EHR vendors, then they're going to be justified in keeping up their firewalls on, no, we're not going to support bi-directional care coordination. And that's going to hurt the patients. That will hurt a lot. I'm sorry? It will hurt a lot. Yes. Because interoperability is not the one way. It should not be. <laughs>
It needs it's to not be, read only. Yeah, it's not. It should be continued. Like they, um, how many times have we heard our elected officials and people in very prominent positions say that the patient is the center of the care continuum or the patient is the center? We know. We in this profession of, of IT, health IT and, 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 and standards, in order to get the patient to be the center of the care continuum, the patient must have access to their data. They must have a way to communicate. And if we don't give them that, then they're not at the center of the care continuum. I want to go back to the right, uh, not only read, not read only interoperability. I work in the lab industry for laboratory information systems, and we are used to write into the EHR our data because they, they read our data, the lab data, and they incorporate. What is the problem with other data? Why then do they want to other systems to write other kind of data? So I don't want to under uh, express. Everyone has their agendas. EHRs and, and other businesses have their own way of doing things and what their rewards are and what, what their motivators are. But in general, if I were uh, if I were responsible for an individual and I was and I had a, a, a system that made decisions, I would want to make sure that that data was as high quality as possible. If you represent to me that you could compromise that data quality by injecting bad data, and I can't be assured of what processes you have and, and how you develop your quality and ensure it and, and catch things when they're wrong, then I might view, I might view that bi-directional healthcare exchange, um, if not rigorous, could be dangerous to my patient. Now, I look at a lab, I look at a lab. Well, are you operating under seven, ISO 17025? Are you a calibrated lab? Do you have good quality data? Do you have good processes? Oh, then all on board. Come on, we'll share data. But if I look at an organization that does some clinical observations and they, they're, they're not certified, they're not going through testing and they don't have good procedures in place, then I'll say, you can fax me something. I'll, I'll take it in as a fax because I can tell my medical professional, this is not codified, computable. You can read it and do whatever you want with it, but I'm not going to make any decisions on it. And so the EHR vendors and others feel that they're, that's the safest approach because they don't want to have the liability or the perceived liability to the customers they're working with. But one thing is to select the parties you want to exchange information with in a non-read-only manner. And the other is we will not do fire right at all for the time being. We are not selecting, we are saying no to everything. Yes, so <laughs> this is a problem. I don't like this. I, I wish that our regulatory bodies and more uh, outside pressure. So I believe right now the most, like I believe the most powerful advocate for fire is the patient. And eventually the patient's requirements are going to be met head on by the physicians and what's going on in, inside of those practices. That is how with patient empowerment and getting con like something as simple as consent. 
If you go to like, you know, I use this analogy a lot. If you go to a bank and you fill out a power of attorney and you say, hey, my kids can have access or or you give a power of attorney to somebody, you're still responsible and in control of that power of attorney. If you go into a medical professional, at least here in the United States, and you fill out a, a, a medical consent to share information, that becomes the property of the doctor in the doctor's office. They're not even accountable to tell you when that consent is fired upon and who has, from an auditing perspective, seen my medical record. No, the patient is granting that consent. It shouldn't be as simple as opt-in or opt-out. So it, when we look at these bi-directional needs of information sharing, I think near the top is consent. Because if the patient is controlling and gets a request from the doctor's office system, we're referring you to Dr. X, we want to share your information. Yeah, I accept that. Or I just got a call from a marketing from some chiropractor. How did he get my medical information? I can go back to my doctors and say, hey, by the way, did you do any marketing sharing with anybody of my record? And I can, I as a patient can ask them against my consent, was there anything that was fired? Anything that was, and I can look at the audit and I can so go. So that oh. combines one reason only exchange, which is I want to see your audit log from a patient perspective in my yep. portal. Yes. And I think that's very important. And I'm not sure that everyone does it. No, no one does it. It's very hard. <laughs> of course, yeah. I want to see what the patient did on, on their social media too. Yeah. Because that, that is more than anything else. Too. Let me ask you a, another question, um, because because for me, quality in, includes consistency and yep. it, it includes uh, the presence of the data that I'm looking for. I think lab data is probably the most accurate data because the things you were talking about is is required by by legislation by uh, quality. You 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 the, the laboratories have to be qualified and, and they do quality. They got ISO. They've got ISO processes. Yeah. Yep. We have uh, some honorable ex exceptions like Tyrannos, but let's not talk okay. about it. <laughs> All right. But 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 how 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 do you propose going about getting the other data fixed. I mean, something as simple as having the data value not match the units. That's one of the biggest problems that we encounter in some of the research. Yeah, I, um, there's a lot of things that I can fix. I can't fix that. Okay. <laughs> but, but we've got to learn how to fix yeah. that or else so, we won't. So here's what, here's what I can do. In my entire world of what I do with testing, my entire world is predictive, meaning If you come in to work with me and you want to test something, whatever it is that we agree that we're going to test, the outcome is already known. I predictively know because I've created the test and I'm judging you against if you're presented with this situation, do you do right? So what I'm going to do is make sure that your system going forward has the highest quality possible. We have a lot of legacy systems. We have a lot of legacy data. I don't know how to do that, but I do know if the stakeholders and the sponsors of the standards and the new things we're developing, don't make it a priority to say, hey, we want to make sure we have quality data. We want to make sure we have tested. And if the sponsors and the, the lead authors don't in their working group sessions say, okay, timeout guys, we've talked about the standard enough. 
let's take 10 minutes to talk about some testing and some sample data. If they don't make that investment, they're going to write a lot of stuff that a lot of people are going to take as being interoperable and they're going to interpret it through their implementation. And you're going to have a lot of conversation that are one-offs because the data and the testing is not there. So how do you evaluate the, the impact of your, when you're consulting with a group, how do you evaluate after you, you go through your tests and, and everything you can, you can, you can score that yep. but after you leave, do you ever go back and look to see if, if the system has changed as a result of? So um, our world teaches organizations that continuous has to be there. Test early, test often. So we can watch organizations, organizations that have good hygiene will publish a release of software internally and they will test it. Every time you publish an okay. internal release, you need to test everything again. We can watch the organization. Fair enough, but, fair yeah. enough. But, but the problem is not the software, it's the humans that are engaged with the system. You can have perfect software and, yep. and, and humans that have pretty good turnover, typically in the IT profession. And, and that's, that's to me, the issue that... Yeah, so, um, so you, you are 100% correct, but I have to start somewhere. So yes. let me explain. I want to make sure that the system yes. is reliable. Fair enough. Once I make sure that the system is reliable, then, you know, is there a way to take Touchstone? into a production because again right now touchstone is a cloud-based testing platform where the end user license agreement specifically states you will not use phi or pii that's a no-no so okay so what if we built a really good advisory approach are you conforming are you doing the right things with the data then there may be a future for touchstone running in production behind a system that could watch the data and watch the rules being applied, but that would have to be done in a very safe enclave and people would have to know that PHI and PII were being taken care of. So it would have to run in a high trust environment. We're struggling to get the basic testing done. I have a question about yes, that. Please. What do you think about production systems, but test patients? So um, there are a number of, of very large billion dollar entities that struggle um, with putting a sample patient in there because organizations like CMS and some, some analytic tools will count those which towards- You do not know which one is real. We, yeah. So, so when we look at quality measures and we look at how systems are reporting out, uh, um, we talk to, we have some very large customers and they have a challenge every month determining, well, how many members, how many visits did I have? And if they report on it from different systems, they get different counts and they spend weeks trying to understand what the differences are. Now, people with financial systems have the same problem, but when people are trying to be judged on their clinical quality measures and they can't explain these numbers, they're, 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 they're left with quandaries that they can't answer. And so, yeah, we, we recognize this, this problem. We really do. I, um, okay. Let's see our fortune wheel. We will get, oh, it's question 10. How can we relate our standards with day-to-day -day care providers? Do we need to, or we are just the plumbing? So I think that, um, the care providers 
first of all, there's a lot of providers out there that are physicians and they're part of the care continuum and we're well aware of their roles and we're trying to get interoperability working so that the patient can be viewed as at the center. But I think that standards like FHIR and where we're taking health IT mean that more of the, of the, of the patient care continuum can participate. I look at organizations like Meals on Wheels. People don't realize that the Department of Veteran Affairs and others, other organizations use organizations like Meals on Wheels to deliver food, but it's also a social touch. It's if the patient doesn't eat their dinner, then there's a signal that they can be that can be sent off. And um, the Department of Veteran Affairs has um, the capability of supporting some veterans with light housekeeping. Um, and one of the things they do is they watch for uh, veterans who want to keep the blinds closed during the day. That's an early stage sign of depression. So th it's important that we recognize that if we're going to have the patient at the center of the care continuum, and that we're going to try to be have these interoperable solutions, that the care team, the care continuum is more than just physicians, but the data has to be there and we have to get the physicians involved and we have to share information with patients. And I'm, as I'm talking with your, your, your audience, I'm letting them know I'm looking at my telephone, my cell phone to make sure that, hey, you know, can I see where my doctor visits are or what my doctors asked me to do if I'm how I'm doing on that. And, and so I think that the, the we're, we're making an impact. We need to recognize that that care continuum is larger than just clinical and medical professionals. There's non-medical professionals that are still part of the care team. We need to have them all engaged, all involved. And, and I agree with what you're saying. The concern is the number of people who don't have a smartphone and the number of people that don't have access to the internet. And yeah, and so I, digital and health is creating a greater barrier than... Yes, and I want to help everyone. I want to help everyone. But this technology, it's part of a technology adoption. While everyone may not have a cell phone, they're, they're still a patient. We should try to take care of them as best we can. But the people who have the technology adoption, if we can do more for them and with them, let's do it. Let's not work to the lowest denominator. Let's work to whatever and meet the patient wherever they are. So let me give you the reverse of that, because what I would think, I would answer that question by saying the first thing we need to do is cheaper to give a patient a smartphone than it is to prescribe some medications. And so I, I wouldn't design to the highest. I, you can't design to the lowest. That's an impossibility, but that's certainly recognizable, fixable problems are yeah, ones that I would deal with. There are efforts underway to help uh, veterans um, that that don't have a permanent, I forget the, the new socio term is for people who don't have a permanent residence um, to help them by giving them a, a smartphone because if they if they do keep in, in the smartphone, we know where they are and wherever they are, that's their home. Mm -hmm. Um, and we can get in touch with them when we need to. Um, so the, the VA and others are looking at those options. Um, you know, when it gets cold, when the phone detects a certain temperature in a region, they can let the person know the shelter is available to them. They've shown that that can save lives. Interesting. Okay, let's do our, next, our last question. And he's number seven. 
Number seven. So yeah, yeah, the relationship between uh, our standards and public health. All right. We see gaps, and how can we move forward? All right. I have a great story for you here. People talk to me all the time about Mario. Tell me about interoperability. Prove to me that interoperability is a use case that everyone should be aware of. Public health is a great example of this. And I don't mean to ride on the coattail of pandemic. We're all over, so over COVID and the pandemic, but I'm sorry, I have to lean a little bit on public health here. Um, we have a huge responsibility in the country, public health, CDC, protect America. And so I'm gonna give you a little use case, a little story. Um, a business person gets on an airplane and travels to Las Vegas. Oh my God, we're here, we're in Vegas. Um, and while they're there attending a, a large conference, we are attending a conference, the business person gets sick. They're not feeling well. So they go to a local uh, clinic, urgent care, and they present and they say, you know, we're not, I'm not feeling very well. Here's what's wrong. Here's my symptoms. And the medical professional there has a protocol that they, they go through. And they let the business person know, unfortunately, they have uh, contracted uh, a con some contagious illness of a type. CDC has given guidance to medical professionals that have found this certain thing, that it's curable, it's treatable, but you're not going to present in a public area. You're not going to ride public transportation. You're going to go back to your hotel. You're going to take Tamiflu or whatever the physician prescribes to you. And you're going to stay in your hotel room and you're going to order room service for the next seven to 10 days. And you're going to stay there until you're better. And then when you're better, you can go home. So the business person collects the information, may or may not sign that release that the physician presents, but the physician tells them, we're going to let the CDC know that we've advised you that you're contagious and that you owe your population, your friends, stay where you need to stay, stay and get better. The business person goes back to their hotel. They stay there for a day and they're feeling worse. And they're like, I'd like to go home to my wife or my spouse. I'd like them to care for me. I want to go home. I don't feel good here. I don't want to stay in the hotel. So they pack up their bags, take a cab to the airport. They present their driver's license and their credit card. I'd like to be on the next plane home. The, the agent, the ticketing agent, doesn't know them. Takes their credit card, takes their driver's license. And at this moment in time, nobody knows anything. But as soon as that ticket agent keys in that driver's license and identity, the back-end system communicates with the CDC and others and says, is this patient, is this person, this passenger able to travel? If that passenger had not gone to that airport, there would be no reason. But that ticketing person gets a printed report that says very simply, can't book a ticket, Here's a phone number and here's a reference number. Please present this to the passenger. Now, there's no PHI and no PII. The ticketing person doesn't know what happened. Just, sir, I can't, or madam, I can't book you a ticket. They know why they can't get a ticket. They should know why. And it's up to them to walk away from the ticket counter and call the phone number and give the reference number. And the CDC person, the representative that answers that phone, says, excuse me, sir or madam, you were told to quarantine. You were told to be at your hotel. What are you doing at the airport? 
We now have a log of this and we're advising state officials that you are not doing what we told you to do. That is an example of the healthcare community and the government and the industry working on interoperability where that none of that would have happened if the patient had stayed at their hotel. But because they posed a risk to public health, then all three of those entities need to talk about that person because they're risking the population. And my, my, my mind is blown up because I'm, I'm always seeing the, the flows of information and you have just presented the flow where you are buying a ticket in, a, in another industry. This is the air, air uh, travel industry and this system should be connected to the CDC too. Yes, <laughs> we should connect them all. We call that metaverse is a new word that we're using now the awareness of people where they're going what yeah people know the best example of interoperability not working outside of healthcare is 9-11 if if we had have had information flowing interoperability between the fbi and all the different things that were going on 9-11 was totally preventable if we had that's beyond beyond technical that's maybe it's political too it's i will not talk with you <laughs> political dominates technical. yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, you have any questions for Ed? Because we we end our uh, our podcast episode with the guest asking something to Ed. If All right. Um, so we watch we watch the standards bodies and we watch the medical professionals out there. I guess some of the challenges we have is we're trying to get the the, the return on investment for testing built once i build the test and if we can get a thousand organizations using our testing approach then then the roi is off the chart dollar invested in what we do repeated across hundreds of organizations is pennies what suggestions would you have to me talking to one of the stakeholders and one of the the, the big groups out there that's trying to market touchstone and into programs like hl7 <clears throat> and countrywide initiatives What could we do better? What, what could we do different to get that message across? Well, my answer to that off the top of my head and a quick response to that is that um, as long as you focus on the standard or the technology alone, you're not going to get their attention. Because first of all, I would think that in most institutions, the number of people that have heard of fire is, is small. I don't know whether it's 10, 15, or 20 percent, but it's 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 not big. And even if they'd heard of it, what how that applies to them doesn't matter. And as you pointed out, it's more than just the IT system. It really has to be the clinical system. And you know, I I don't I I never complain about st stepping away from COVID. Now I think COVID has changed the world in a in a positive way for technology. And I think the doctors that have ignored knowing something about what's going on. Uh, I've changed their mind. They're opening up their mind a little bit. And I think that's a perfect opportunity. But but in many cases, the gap is they don't see the connection between the service that you provide and their use of that service. And and I think part of that is is the educational find a way of of capturing the attention of of that group. And you know, for for us, if if we're talking to the financial people at Duke. 
they're only interested in the money aspect of that. And you talk to the clinic, the cl clinical folk, they're interested only in the clinical part of that. But getting, getting, this is, you, that's why I asked some questions about interoperability. It has to engage that full community yes, of understanding it. And, and I think you need a sales pitch that engages that set of people. Hey guys, I think we need coffee. So I yes, guess, thank you very much. Thank you very thank much. Thank you for being very much, Mario. Good job. Thank you again, Ed, for being with me. Thank you, sir.